So I'm incredibly excited to be interviewing Frances Harding today, who is the author of 10 novels, including her latest, On Rabbler, which has just come out on September the 1st. Frances won the Costa Book Award in 2015 for her book, The Lie Tree, which was, in theory, a book for young adults, but it was given the award for the best book of the year in 2015. And I feel that all of Frances's books should be read by people of all ages, not just children and young adults, because they're so brilliant and appealing to every age. So, um, Frances, I'd love you to start us off by giving a summary of your new book, Unraveler, telling us what it's all about. Uh, I'm very happy to do that. Uh, I must say I'm also very happy to be at a festival where I just get to listen to people saying really nice things about me back to back. I'm entirely open to some more of that. But, uh, yes, uh, this, this is my latest book. This is Unraveler. And like a lot of my books, it's YA. It's, it's kind of dark. It's fantasy, but it's also an adventure, mystery, and it's, it's quite weird. Uh, it's set in an, uh, an imaginary country called Radith, and Radith has a couple of peculiarities. Uh, one peculiarity is the fact that just along the coast, there's a narrow strip of marshlands, marshy woods, in fact, that are known as the wilds. Nothing quite works in the wilds the way it would in a rational country. That's the place where you encounter creatures of dark dreams and where anyone you meet might be anything. The other quirk of Radith is that anybody who is consumed by rage or hatred or pain can potentially develop the ability to curse. They can actually cast a curse onto their enemy. Shall I move on to a reading? Yeah, that would be great, because I think the reading evokes the spirit of the book fantastically. I'm going to be reading an excerpt from the prologue where I'm, I'm basically addressing an imaginary visitor to Radith. If you must travel to the country of Radith, then be prepared. Bring a mosquito net for the lowlands and a warm coat for the hills or mountains. If you mean to visit the misty marshwoods known as the wilds, you will need stout waterproof boots. You will also need wits, courage and luck, but some things cannot be packed. When your ship arrives at the great Mizzleport Harbour, Remember to trade your gold currency for Radith's ugly steel coins. Don't be offended when the customs folk peer at you through lenses set in hollow stones or sweep you with iron-fibred brushes. There are reasons for caution where the land meets the sea. Ignore the hustlers on the docks who will try to sell you anti-curse amulets. You have, of course, heard that some people in Radith are able to curse their enemies. It sounded so picturesque 
when you were reading about it at home, like a fairy tale. As you listen to the peddler's blood-curdling warnings, however, you may start to feel nervous. You shouldn't really waste money on a so-called protective amulet, but you probably will. The hustlers may also try to sell you and the other tourists bundled parchments that they claim are maps of the wilds. The wilds cannot truly be mapped. Buy one anyway, just in case. As you walk through Mizzleport, you will soon realise that none of the locals wear anti-curse amulets. Your landlord at the inn will gently mock you for buying one. If you ask him how you should protect yourself, however, he will shrug and offer no useful suggestions. You can't defend yourself from a curse, he will tell you. But don't worry, curses are rare. Only those consumed by hatred are able to curse. Just make sure nobody hates you while you're here. The other locals at the inn will be happy to answer some of your questions. Do curses really exist? Yes. Can curses really set someone on fire, steal their shadow, or turn them into a swarm of bees? Yes. Is it true that the power to curse comes from spiders? No. The little brothers are not spiders, however much they look like them. What are the little brothers then? Your new friends will tell you with a certain affection of the many-legged creatures that live in the cobweb-laden treetops of the wilds. They are friends to weavers and craftsmen, apparently. They also seek out those consumed by rage or hatred and gift them with a curse. The curse then nestles in the host's soul like an unhatched egg growing in power until the curse is ready to unleash, cursor is ready to unleash it upon an enemy. Try not to ask the next questions that burn in your mind. Shouldn't somebody do something about this? Why don't you all just exterminate these spider things to stop people becoming curses? If you ask this, make everyone around you very uncomfortable. The little brothers cannot be swatted by ordinary spiders, they will tell you. Besides, attempting to harm them would anger the wilds. While you are still reeling from everyone's grim and serious tone, the conversation will move on to another subject. The wilds are slippery. It is hard to think of them or talk of them for very long. You will only consider the matter again at the first stop on the route out of Mizzleport. From the raised road, you will at last have a view down to the famous wilds that line the Radith coast. Prepare to be very, very disappointed. Admit it. The wilds were one of the reasons you came to Radith in the first place. You had read stories of these sprawling, misty marshwoods 
veiled with cobweb and dripping with emerald moss. You had heard of the shape-shifting brags, the dagger-toothed marsh horses, the dancing glimmers that lure you into danger, and the pale-handed ladies who offer secrets if you solve their riddles. Yet here you are, staring down at a meagre band of damp, greyish woodland, only a few miles deep. Is that what all the fuss is about? So narrow and dull looking. How could it possibly hide ancient ruins, secret castles or mysterious lakes? How could anyone wander lost in the wild for years? If you are rash enough to venture down among the trees, you will discover your error quickly. The innocent appearance of the wilds is a lie. The marshwoods are every bit as strange, vast and perilous as the stories say. Thank you so much. Um... It's tempting to just get you to carry on reading for the whole hour. Um, Spellbinding as it is. And I must say, when I first started this book, I was completely hooked and immediately had to find out what was going on with the curses and the little brothers, which we gradually discover as the book unravels itself. Um, But one of the first questions that I wanted to ask you is relating to the curses which are mentioned in that prologue. The curses are particularly painful and picturesque. So many of the people who are cursed have really awful fates, like they get turned into a boat and live as a boat with their planks being nailed together and leaking and witnessing what happens down the river until they might be lucky enough for their curse to be undone. Um, other people, uh, another person who gets cursed has turned into a harp and she's played by various people in a pub and nobody knows that she was once a, a young girl and now she's a harp. Um, other people get transformed into birds or fish. So all the curses are really quite horrifying because if you're turned into a fish, you're quite likely to be caught on a hook and possibly eaten. Um, But I'd love to know where that idea of the curses being such a tangible force came from. Well, quite a lot of these come from uh, fairy tale or folklore, or at least partly inspired by them. Uh, There is a character called Nettle, uh, who is one of the two protagonists of this book, who actually uh, spent three years as a heron, which was not planned on her part. Uh, And her other three siblings were transformed into birds, different birds, at the same time, by their stepmother, who had a curse building up inside her. And they are slightly... That that particular curse is somewhat inspired by Hans Christian Andersen's Wild Swans. Uh, for For those who don't know the story... There was a wicked stepmother who curses her uh, 11 stepsons to become wild swans, as you do, uh, and the only person that she doesn't curse 
is her, her good and virtuous uh, stepdaughter, who immediately sets about trying to find ways to lift the curse of her brothers. And she discovers that the only way that she can do this is to knit shirts out of nettles. And she's not allowed to speak a word all the time she's doing this. She finds herself in the kingdom of uh, uh, a king who's, who discovers this silent nettle knitting girl and decides that he's, he's madly in love with her and wants to marry her and then is persuaded by his archbishop that, oh, no, no, maybe she's a witch. Maybe I should burn her instead. And, and, and this, so this poor girl, still, still trying desperately to produce these nettle shirts, is actually in the cart heading to the stake when the 11 swans that her brother basically fly down to her and she's able to throw the shirts onto these swans and they all change back into her brothers, except for the youngest, because she hasn't quite finished his shirt, so he's still got one swan wing. And, and then they're able to talk and she's able to talk and the misunderstanding's cleared up and the king marries her after all. And I remember reading this and thinking, I have questions. <laughs> and, and the first question is, is marrying a man who was ready to burn you five minutes ago really a happy ending because I am not convinced your marriage has a rock-solid foundation? <laughs> but moving on, can we go back to that poor guy with the swan wing? What's his life going to be like? Is he okay? Actually, are any of them all right? Because they've all been swans for some time. Is that something you just shrug off? How easily do you go from experiencing something like that to just being a person again? Will, will these boys be running around trying to peck people? Will they occasionally be looking out of their palace window at a, at a grey autumn sky and thinking, sort of wish miss my wings right now? And so that sort of question inspired elements of Nettle's background. Also, as you probably gathered, her name. So that's, yeah. that's the inspiration for that curse. As for the poor heart girl, that, that was actually inspired by uh, an old ballad called Two Sisters. Uh, it's, it's not a very happy ballad. I think we need to know the story, though. Right. Um, <laughs> in Two Sisters, there are indeed two sisters, and very unfortunately, they are both interested in the same man. And the man appears to favour the younger. So the older watches for her moment, and then she drowns the younger sister and leaves her body. Then somebody comes across this, this poor drowned young woman and is struck by her beauty and decides to make a harp out of her, as you do. <laughs> and uses her bones and, and strings it with her hair. Meanwhile, the, the older sister has managed to get round this, uh, this man that they both liked. And it gets to the point where she and he are due to be married. But there's this harp player that turns up with this very strange-looking harp to the wedding. And when he plays it, everyone can hear a voice, which is the younger sister speaking of what has happened to her. I mean, there are various different versions of this song, and in some of it, the elder sister just gets away with it. But I liked the idea of this harp being able to speak 
of its true nature to somebody who had the ears to hear it. I'm, I'm actually slightly more cruel, I think, to uh, the young girl who gets cursed, since she is actually taken apart and tra transformed into a harp by her cursor while still alive. Yes, now I think about that, that probably is actually worse, isn't it? Yeah, because it's quite graphically described in a way. It's only a paragraph that you're talking about how she is taken apart and put back together as a harp. So you don't shy away from the gruesome aspects of these situations. Um, but I do love the way, as you say, you then investigate further into the repercussions of having been transformed, like the four brothers and sisters who were turned into birds. One of them has an incredibly traumatic experience, which I won't reveal because it would be a spoiler, and when he then becomes human again, he needs to recover from that experience. And it takes years, and he's effectively in rehabilitation for that. And that's where you go beyond the fairy tale into the lasting psychological trauma. But uh, it's also really interesting, the idea of the curse egg being something inside people's bodies waiting to hatch as a curse and it's uh, I imagine a metaphor for somebody brewing a deep resentment against someone else but it becomes a very physical thing and at one point you suggest that it might be possible to cut out the curse egg from a person well it's kind of suggested by one of the characters which is a rather gruesome concept as well but um, luckily, yeah. we don't see that happen. No. And again, uh, there's a limit to how much I want to say there, given that some characters say things but are actually wrong, and I, I don't want to give too much in that particular... Yes. Yes. We're, we're, so, we're now going to smile knowingly at each other. Yes. yes. <laughs> You've got to read it. Um, so one of the main characters, apart from Nettle, is called Kellen. And I don't think it's too much of a giveaway to say that he is somebody who can unravel curses. And an unfortunate aspect of his ability to unravel curses is that he also unravels accidentally any cloth and material around him. So just by being in a room with a tapestry, it starts to fray and unravel itself. And people's clothes might start unraveling as well. And I really love that idea. And he has to wear iron gloves. Yeah, gloves with iron studs in them, yes. Um, because that, that slightly reduces that unravelling effect. Uh, yes, as I say, there, there are two protagonists in this book. And Kellen is, in fact, the only person in Radith who can lift a curse. Uh, he's about 15 years old. He has a very big bounce and a very short fuse. He, t he tends to lose his temper at people a lot, quite often people in authority, so he's surprisingly good at winding up powerful people. Yes, and he's a really attractive character because he's very impetuous and has this great ability to unravel curses, but then doesn't really know what to do with it afterwards. Yes. And that's another aspect of you investigating the scars left by a curse because 
he unravels the curse and is like, great, you're not a boat anymore. Suddenly you're just a naked man with a few wounds where you might have had planks, nails put into your planks. Um, bye. Um, <laughs> it's been nice knowing you. And Nettle actually says to him, come on, you need to help the, these poor people who've been cursed. You can't just unravel the curse. You've got to try and uh, deal with the aftermath. And he doesn't really know how. He is only 15, so yeah. it's understandable. I mean, to, be, to be fair, it's quite hard. You know, as far as he's concerned, the, the, the unravelling is the, is the bit he can manage. It's Unravelling a curse isn't just a matter of sort of waving a special power at something. It's, it's a mixture of uh, detective work to try and work out who cast the curse and why they did it and getting a, getting a real feel for what has happened. And then there's often a, um, a poetic aspect, something that, something that needs to be done in order to uh, undo the curse, something that's, that's got a poetic rightness. And he's really good at working out what those things would be. But after that, then you, you, you have this traumatised person, and he's, he's not really quite sure what to do about that. Like, well, that, there is a person, and now they're crying. And... Well, well, I'm glad that worked. Bye! <laughs> um, yes, he's, he's just not quite sure how to handle it. Whereas Nettle is a lot better at it. I mean, for one thing, she's got first-hand experience. She actually knows what it's like, basically spending some time cursed and then coming out the other side and knows that most people won't understand. So she starts creating a sort of support network amongst the various people whose curses Kellen has unravelled, and they call themselves the rescued. And she, she stays in contact with them all because they have a better ability to understand what the others are going through. And there's also an aspect of having to talk to the curser and perhaps get to know the, cur the person that laid the curse in the first place um, and discover why they actually did that. And sometimes that's the way of unravelling the curse as well. Yes. So it's all very psychological, but um, told in this very exciting and adventurous fashion because apart from the fact that we have curses and very dramatic metamorphoses occurring there's also some other rather exciting elements of the book including um, carnivorous horses uh, who are quite threatening and terrifying and the people that look after them who are also enigmatic and really scary, uh, plus the little brothers who are not spiders but are very spider-like, hence the webs that we keep seeing. Um, I love the little brothers in the book and they are quite enigmatic. I'd love to know where the idea of the little brothers came from. Do they relate to anything in fairy tales or are they, are they totally your own invention? Uh they're not, they're not specifically relating to something in, in, in folklore. Uh, I am a semi-retired arachnophobe. Uh, I, I used to be an absolutely full-blown uh, arachnophobe. Now I am capable of approaching even quite a large spider and putting a glass over it. That is not something I could once have done. Um, <laughs> but it means that I, I still have uh, an interesting relationship with them. Uh, I, I'm hoping that I'm... I'm hoping that the, that the way the Little Brothers are, writ are written won't actually traumatise any arachnophobes. So if, if you are, like me, a bit nervous around spiders, um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're probably not going to end up suing me. Um, so no, they, they are not uh, so much based on folklore. Uh, however, the, the marsh horse, the marsh horses uh, are somewhat inspired by kelpies. Ah, kelpies are, aren't they seals? No. Uh, no, that's selkies. Ah, there you go. Um, so what are kelpies? Oh, they're, they're part of Scottish folklore. Uh, if you're in a very lonely place, imagine that you come across this rather beautiful black, maybe a pony, you know, and, and, it, and it seems really friendly, and so, you know, you, you approach it and you, you pet it, and it's, its mane's damp, and that should probably be a warning, but, you know, it seems, it's, it seems so friendly, it's sort of nuzzling your hand, and, and you get the feeling that, that it wants you to climb on its back. Under no circumstances do this, because if you do, it will run as fast as it can to the watery location where it actually lives and dive in to drown you. And then it will eat all of you except for your heart. Do not ride the friendly horsey. So that's, that's basically kelpies. Uh, I, I decided to have something a little like that, given that I had some perfectly good marsh woods where I felt that uh, man-eating water-bound horses could live quite happily. But then I gave them some other aspects as well. Um, it is possible at certain strange moonlit markets on the edge of the sea to buy a marsh horse that you can then ride. But you, you don't use money for this. Usually the payment has to be a single eye of beautiful, beautiful colour and clear sight. Voluntarily given. Yes, absolutely. So rich people in, um, in Radith actually quite like the idea of having a marsh horse, these, these beautiful big black horses that can pull their carriages. They are less keen on the idea of giving up their eyes. So what they tend to do is get a poor or desperate person and get them to agree to give up one of these eyes at one of these markets uh, and they will then come back with the marsh horse. And the thing is, the marsh horse is always very clear on whose eye has bought it. It doesn't matter how much money has exchanged hands. So if the rich people have any sense, they will then hire this one-eyed person to be the rider of the horse or the coachman for the horse because the loyalty is, is always going to be to the person that, that paid with their eye. There's effectively a pact, and that changes, tends to change the person who is packed to the horse as well. They become stranger, colder, often greyer, and a little less human. A little more like something from the wilds. Yeah, the, the marsh horses and the owners are very sinister, and there's a really wonderful character in the book called Gaul, good name for such a person, uh, who is key to the plot, and we can't really reveal what happens, but he's very important, and uh, I love his transformation as well, because one of the wonderful things about Francis's writing is that the people change throughout the book in quite significant ways, and people that might seem initially to be the evil ones the baddies 
might be redeemed as they go along, but I'll say no more than that. And actually, that leads me to another question relating to themes within your books generally. You quite often have people changing in quite major ways, such as in Cuckoo Song. Um, though I don't know if people are familiar with that book, which is one of Francis's earlier ones. There's a girl, Tris, who wakes up to realise that she is literally not herself. She's become something else. And in various ways that happens in this book as well. Is that a preoccupation of yours? Waking up and realising that you're actually not who you thought you were? <laughs> I, I, I refuse to comment as to whether that's first-hand experience. Um, <laughs> Yes, I think it is. Uh, I, think, I, I think somebody once said that all books have the plot, who am I? I, I think there's some truth in that. I, th I certainly think a, a lot of the more interesting stories are, are, are journeys of self-discovery. Uh, I, 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 I think that journeys of self-discovery aren't necessarily easy or without their, without their terrors. You, you know, there's, if, if you have a notion of who you are, that's, that's quite comforting. It's something you tend to cling to. Discovering that you are somebody else, even if that's ultimately a much more freeing persona, well, it can, it can be a bit of a shock to the system. That's, that's a scary thing to have to work your way through. Yes, and um, it does come into this book in various ways with the transformations that happen when people are cursed, for instance, they suddenly might start literally transforming with feathers coming out of their skin. And uh, I do particularly love the way you effect those transformations in a way which is deeply disturbing. Um, I think there's a moment where one of the characters transforms from a bird into a human, and you actually say there's no easy way of this transformation happening, uh, the feathers have to retract back into the skin and he's literally writhing around on the floor as he changes and you really imagine the weirdness of that trans transformation in a way which is very different to what we normally experience in fairy tales when people, one minute they're a bird, the next minute they're back into human beauty and you don't get the gruesome bit in the middle. Yes, there, there, there isn't a moment where little twinkly stars come down and then they change shape. That doesn't happen. Not very no. Disney. No. <laughs> and it does mean also that some of the people don't want to transform back if, if they have the option, because they know it's going to be too yes. painful. In fact, can I... Should, I, I might actually give an example of that. Um, Please do. As I mentioned... Nettle's siblings were transformed at the same time that she was. And one of her brothers does tra transform back at the same time as she does and promptly suffers a form of nervous collapse as he, as he processes some of the things that have happened while he was a hawk. Uh, the other brother is a gull. And at the point where Nettle and, and, her, and the first brother had flown down to, to actually receive their, their cure, to, to have their curse lifted by Kellen, the, the girl looks down at them and, and sees them basically transforming, contorting in, 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 in the mud, 
looking extremely miserable as the, as the trauma hits and thinks, nope, <laughs> no, no, actually, no, I'm good. And actually just flies away. And so and when this, when this uh, book starts, he's still very much a gull. Uh, he has a form of telepathic communication with Nettle, who is, who is still human, but he sort of flies in and out of her life. Sometimes he's gone for months and, and she'll worry about him quite a lot and then he'll just turn up and demand that she feeds him. <laughs> yes, and we do get to know him quite well and realise that he has chosen not to transform because, because of that reason, because yeah. of the pain involved. Yeah. And also we have glimpses of his gull life actually being rather lovely in some ways. He goes and visits his nest and sees his little baby gulls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can fly, you know. Exactly. Who wouldn't want to fly if they could? So um, going back into your own childhood, is, is there a moment, do you think, when you started thinking that you really wanted to be a writer and started telling your own stories or writing them down? To be honest, I can't remember a time when I, I didn't want to be a writer. I, mind you, I also wanted to be an artist and a scientist and a ballerina, and I wanted to um, unravel the language of cats. Um, so I didn't manage all of those. <laughs> um, it's still time. It did, but yeah. <laughs> as, as to whether I communicate with cats or not, I don't, I don't think they'd want me to say. <laughs> um, but I've, I've got stories that I was scribbling down when I was about five or six. In fact, there's, there's one I've got which is half a page long, and... I, th- I definitely wrote it when I was six years old, and in the course of that half a page, there's an attempted poisoning, uh, somebody fakes their own death, and the villain falls to his doom off a cliff. Wow. <laughs> so my story, yes, my story's already quite dark. They've just kind of got a bit longer. <laughs> and were you reading a lot as a child, or did the stories come from within? I was definitely reading a lot as a child. Uh, I mean, my, my parents both read to me and my sister. I think, uh, apparently, even when we were babies, we would be, we be given cloth books that we could chew. <laughs> um, and they definitely, they definitely read to us. I, I have very clear memories of listening to the whole of the Darkest Rising series mm. being read to me and my sister by my father uh, next to a crackling fire, which is absolutely the best way to hear that series. They're brilliant books. Everyone should read them if you haven't Fantastic. And how old were you then, do you think? Probably about eight, I think. Mm. Something like that. Mm. I can't remember exactly. And did you continue to be a passionate reader in your teens? Yes, absolutely. And I was definitely experimenting more with my writing during that time as well. My, um, my first full-length novel, I wrote when I was 13, handwritten in a notebook in pencil. And I didn't show it to anybody. And in fact, I have never shown it to anybody, and I'm not going to because it's really not very good. (laughs) But but it was good experience. You learn a lot when you actually push on and finish something like that. Yes. And does that book have any elements that are similar to the books you wrote later? Um, It's got mysteries and betrayal Mm. and adventure. Yes, I, well, I do like my betrayals. Mm. Interesting. So, um, were there any writers when you were growing up 
and beginning to hone your own writing skills that you particularly wanted to emulate or loved more than others? Well, I, I am completely biased because there is one author that I will always consider the, the greatest inspiration, and that's my late granddad, my, my mother's father. Uh, to explain, my, my mother's father had to leave school age 14 because he belonged to a poor family. And they, they didn't have much choice in the matter. They needed him to go and start earning some money for the family, which yeah, happened to a lot of kids of his generation. Uh, but he was incredibly bright, so he kept working on trying to educate himself and borrowed whatever books he could. And his, his local headmaster just kept lending him books and he managed eventually to get himself into teacher training college, became a teacher in a local school, and then started writing in his free time. And first of all, he was just getting short stories published in the local newspaper, but he ended up writing books, and in the end got 12 books, about, yeah, about 12 books published with a local publishing company, oh. uh, which I think is actually extremely impressive for somebody who left school at 14. That's fantastic. And what kind of books were they? What were they about? Uh, they were a mix of fiction and non-fiction. And, well, he, he grew up in Suffolk, so a lot of what he wrote was very much about, about Suffolk. So the, the, a lot of the short stories, short story collections, were about people living ordinary sort of Suffolk lives, the sort that, mm. he, that he would have had. Um, but he also wrote about the folklore of the region, and the villages and the churches, and and had books d dedicated to each of these. There's a, I think the most popular one was Suffolk Ghosts. Mm, wow! So he was one of your major influences. Well, certainly an inspiration. Yes. Yeah. And then, did you have particular um, children's book writers that you wanted to emulate when when yes. you started? Yes. Uh, oh, I think a lot of the a lot of the books that have shaped my imagination most were a lot of those children's writers yeah. that I read when I was quite young. So Susan Cooper is definitely among them. Mm. Uh, Alan Garner, I mean, between the two of them, they gave me uh, my love of folklore, my, my sense of myth, I suppose. And I think Susan Cooper also shaped my sense of place. I ever afterwards thought of, thought of places as having souls that were defined by their stories, their history, their folk tales. Until you knew them, you didn't actually have a proper sense for the soul of a, of a location. Um, Leon Garfield got me into historical fiction. Uh, and I think Nicholas Fisk got me into science fiction. And mm -hmm. in my teens, I read an absolute bucket load of Agatha Christie. Excellent. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so... I think, I think she is partly responsible for my, my mystery addiction. Great. So um, all of your books are incredibly different to each other. Each one creates its own unique world. So, for instance, in this one we have the, the curses, the little brothers, the marsh lands, the marsh horses. Um, whereas in uh, A Face Like Glass we have a kind of underworld and people who have uh, no expressions on their faces unless they learn the expressions and so on. So each of your books is incredibly different and you 
create a highly complex world um, which is very fully formed for that particular book. And then you seem to move on to another one. And I wondered if when you're writing your next book, when, you, when you go from one to another, if you ever get the world muddled up. Not usually, no. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're usually sufficiently different that um, I, 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 they don't tend to sort of bleed, bleed through into each other. But it is true, I do tend to jump from world to world and there are two main reasons for that. The first is that I am an addicted world builder. I actually just really enjoy creating new worlds. Uh, and the second reason is that during the process of writing a book, round about two-thirds of the way through the first draft, I fall catastrophically out of love with it. <laughs> uh, and by the time I finish writing it, I, it, that has graduated into complete loathing. And I, I become convinced that it is a, a terrible thing that nobody's ever going to want to read. Um, there's there's one, at least one occasion where I, I came down and ranted to my other half about everything that was wrong with my book. And um, at the very end of this, this rant, I said, and I don't even know how far through it I am. And he said, two-thirds. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassingly, he then told me all the stages I would go through next. <laughs> and he was right <laughs> so apparently there's a pattern but this does mean that by the time I have finished telling that story and edited it repeatedly uh, even after it's been published which is about the point where I, I generally start forgiving it for existing I don't really want to go back to it I want a shiny new world I want to make something new and exciting so I run off and do that so I, I am horribly extravagant when it comes to worlds, I will create a whole world and instead of using it repeatedly or recycling it, I just throw it away into landfill and then make a new one. <laughs> yeah, because we were talking earlier about how with each of your books, it seems a really great idea to write a sequel and you've only done that once. Um, but whenever we finish one of your books, we definitely want more. We want the story to continue and as you say, it is rather extravagant of you to chuck that world in the bin and start again. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I mean, I am, I am very... I'm always very happy if somebody asks me if I'm thinking about writing a sequel to one of my books. Because one of the things I try to do is give a feeling that even if that story arc has finished, there, that there's, the world will still continue to exist beyond the last page. I want mm. to give the feeling that the characters have not just been resolved now. That they're not in a state where nothing interesting will ever happen to them again. I want to leave a feeling that they will go on and have new adventures and meet new challenges. So if people ask me if I'm, if I'm going to write a sequel, then that makes me feel that I've probably got the balance about right. Definitely.